Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about what we see as some of the major trends in the market for lifelong learning that occurred during 2016, and we're going to make some predictions about what may emerge in 2017. Before we do that, though, we want to be sure to thank your membership, which as the sponsor of our Trends and Predictions webinar earlier this month is also the sponsor for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. So Jeff, trends and predictions, tis the season. It is indeed, and we've, we've been doing this for uh, quite some time, for, for a few years now. So for better or worse, we, we do actually have a track record uh, at this, and, um, and we like to make that track record uh, public. Um, we don't get everything right, um, but nonetheless, it's good to, to go back and, and, and recap you know, some of what we've said and, and covered in the past, whenever we're setting up any sort of new uh, trends and predictions sort of uh, session or, or episode. So why don't, we, why don't we start out with that? We can go all the way back to, to 2013 and kind of lead up to um, this year and, and talk about uh, some of what we've, what we've said in the past. Yeah, so back in at the end of 2013, we had our first trends and predictions webinar. And in that webinar, we focused around uh, three megatrends. So we talked about megatrends in the sense that they roll up a lot of other smaller trends. And so the first of those megatrends that we touched on back in 2013 was the growth of different modes for learning. And by modes for learning, we were talking about things like MOOCs, the massive open online courses, talking about flipped classrooms, uh, like what Khan Academy is doing. Um, And we talked about virtual conferences. So those new modes of learning were making new business models possible. They were giving us new ways to monetize learning. So that was one of the, the first of the three megatrends we highlighted in 2013. The second trend we highlighted was what we called e-learning, but the e has a little uh, a footnote on it because this e doesn't stand for electronic as it usually does with e-learning, but it stands for entrepreneurial. So, you know, we were looking at things like self-publishing on the instructor side and, and self-directed learning on the learner side. So there are a lot of new technologies, a lot more content, and these things that were opening up ways for individuals to be more involved in both um, delivering content. So you have those entrepreneurial subject matter experts that can put out offerings. Um, they don't really need a whole lot of uh, staff or a, a lot of marketing muscle necessarily behind it. And then um, 
on the individual learner side, just that search and the amount of content out there has made it a lot easier for the individual learner to say, you know what, I need to learn about X and to go out and find out about X. And then the third trend from 2013 was that we really focused around credibility so that when you have a really wide open, really competitive and entrepreneurial market, there's so many choices out there that you have um, learners looking to who they think is the most credible source when it comes to making choices about where to learn and how to learn. And we um, wanted to highlight in in particular that associations who usually have built-in credibility with their members, that this is a big leg up for them. So those were the the trends that we highlighted in 2013. And then when we looked uh, at the end of 2013 to what we thought 2014 would hold, we we looked at kind of two forecasts and kind of one anti-prediction. So um, we talked about the promise of blended learning finally being meaningfully realized, largely in part because of the growth of mobile learning. And then we also talked about a, a universal transcript, so a, a transcript that documents a wide range of learning experiences and achievements. And um, we touched on how 10CAN, also known as the Experience API or XAPI, talked about how that would make it easier to really have a, a universal transcript. And then that anti-prediction that we um, asserted at the end of 2013 is that the lecture is alive and well and will survive the rumors of its death. And uh, indeed, that seems to have played out because here we are in 2016 and and lectures still exist and even can be good. Indeed. There doesn't seem to be uh, any evidence that the, the lecture is going to uh, die away anytime soon. And, uh, and of course, we, you know, we'll, we'll leave it to you, dear listeners, to reflect on how accurate we've been with these, uh, these trends and predictions in the past. So from my viewpoint, I, you know, I'd see most of these continuing to evolve and, and develop and, uh, and, and in fact, uh, becoming truer and truer. So that was 2013. And then in, uh, 2014, we also, uh, made, uh, identified three trends that uh, that we wanted to highlight. Um, the first of those was uh, what we characterized as the the emergence, the growth of uh, the validation industry. And this was, you know, there was um, budding recognition that uh, education and, and, and learning weren't necessarily always happening in the traditional formal structures. Um, so it wasn't necessarily about, you know, traditional degrees and traditional certifications. There are a lot of other ways that people uh, are learning and developing. So this was when we really started to see uh, the, the trend towards competency-based education emerge, uh, for example. Um, we also saw the, the emergence of what we characterize as, as learning lockers. So sites like degreed.com, which we feature in an earlier uh, podcast episode where it's possible for uh, uh, anybody who's registered there to to track a variety of different types of of learning experiences and and basically keep that sort of universal transcript that that you just referred to a a minute ago, Salisa. And this is also when we saw um, nanodegrees starting to emerge, particularly in the hands of a company like uh, Udacity. So um, different ways of looking at how do we validate learning, um, how do we confirm that that learning has happened and, and create something that uh, particularly workers can, you know, carry with them uh, into the the workforce and and throughout their careers. We also identified what we call the uh, small is beautiful trend. And, you know, I just referenced nano degrees, so not your full-blown degree, but uh, very 
focused degree around you know a specific type of programming for exa- for example um, and takes much less time costs much less money gets you into the workforce much faster transitions jobs much faster so that was one uh, piece of evidence for the small as beautiful trend um, but micro learning this is when micro learning also started to emerge and micro learning has continued to blossom as a trend the idea that you can get these you know short snippets of learning five 10 15 minutes often delivered by video but can be delivered in a wide variety of formats and being able to you know get that kind of just in time learning but also support good learning practices like spaced learning um, by being able to repeat and, and reaccess these these small uh, increments of learning and then the third trend that we talked about in, in 2014 was what we characterized as the impact imperative. And that's the idea that, you know, when you are in this increasingly competitive market that you were just, you know, referring to, Salisa, uh, eventually you got to start showing that you're making a difference. You got to show that you're actually moving the dial and having an impact. Uh, so we felt there was a lot more emphasis emerging at that point in time on uh, things like learning analytics, really being able to take the data that comes from learning and, and use that to show that, you know, learning is actually happening and that is moving the dial. And, uh, you know, we felt at the time and still do feel that organizations are going to have to put a lot more emphasis on evaluating not just the immediate, you know, reception to learning, but the longer term impact of learning and, and really learning how to do effective evaluation. And that's a topic we've taken up in, in the last year as well with uh, Will Tallheimer, um, who's written a, a great book on that topic. And we can link to that podcast uh, episode as part of the show notes for this one. So those were the, the trends we identified, the value validation industry, the small is beautiful trend, and the impact imperative. And then in terms of the predictions we made, uh, you know, we said that learning and uh, the way that we think about learning and the way we label learning is going to become increasingly blurry. Um, you know, the, the blur between, say, you know, content marketing on the one hand and an actual learning experience on the other, and then just the different uh, ways in which learning happens, informal, formal, online, offline, mobile, desktop, you know, none of the traditional terms really uh, apply uh, as well these days. And, you know, in fact, we expect uh, fully to see the, the E drop from e-learning one of these days uh, uh, here soon um, because it just no longer is a, a valid distinction in many ways because learning crosses, you know, so many borders uh, the, the way that it's done in this day and time. And then the last uh, prediction we made, or the second prediction, the last prediction we made in, in 2014 was uh, what we characterized as the rise of the machines and uh, focused in particular on um, artificial intelligence, um, which you know most uh, readers or l- listeners who've been paying attention will note that artificial intelligence has been getting a lot uh, of coverage this past year. It's really coming into the mainstream at this point, but also you know robotics, uh, internet of things, you know just all these ways that uh, machines are becoming smarter and are changing um, both how we learn and what we need uh, to learn. You know, what, what are humans good for versus what are machines for and how does that impact uh, uh, what we learn and, and how we learn. So that was our, our, our second prediction for 2014. And then last year, 2015, um, we looked at two learning trends. And the first one that we highlighted was design thinking. And and design thinking starts with a a goal or a better future situation in mind um, rather than focusing on a specific problem. And and the idea is that will help stimulate creative thinking and, and approaches. And then the second trend from last year was personalized learning. And so personalized learning is when it's learning that's tailored to an individual learner's specific strengths and needs and interests. And personalized learning has been around a long time. You know, you can just think about uh, tutors 
and that's a, a classic old school example of personalized learning. But we chose to highlight personalized learning last year because um, technology has reached a tipping point with sophisticated algorithms that that make it possible to offer personalized learning on a big scale. You know, this doesn't have to be that old fashioned, you know, human driven personalized uh, learning like a tutor is. Um, because that can be very time and resource intensive, expensive. Um, and so, you know, we really saw personalized learning beginning to take off. And then we offered last year in 2015 two predictions which tied to the trends that we were seeing in 2015. So, Jeff, you talked about grand design learning, um, so kind of the application of design thinking specifically uh, in the case of the development of learning products and, and services. And then I talked about um, boutique learning, so kind of the idea that there will be a resurgence of small-scale, highly specialized learning um, that really focuses on the personal, the human, rather than the personalized and the technological. And we did do a, a podcast on, on those two concepts, the grand design learning and the boutique learning. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well so that uh, folks can get our, our fuller thinking on, on those two concepts. So that, that's what we've done in the past. And, um, you know, it's always important to, to set the stage for what we're going to say now because, uh, you know, for example, we're not going to say micro learning is a trend this year, even though it continues to be a very strong trend. But we've talked about that in the past. You know, we try to stay ahead of the curve in, uh, in, in what we put out there. So um, we're going to focus on some other areas this year, and I'll, I'll throw the, the first trend out there that we've been seeing in 2016, and that is workforce development, or, or more specifically, what we see is the really tightening link between lifelong learning and workforce development and workforce sustainability. And we feel like, you know, that, that's been out there for a while, but um, things really started to click uh, in, in 2016. Um, the, the, the level of conversation, the amount of conversation around this really heightened. Um, you know, we've seen many instances of, you know, academia really trying to think about its role in this, starting to, to partner uh, with corporations. Um, I think it's a really big focus of, of academic uh, uh, higher education type uh, conversations right now, um, but also you know started to come to the forefront in the association um, world. Uh, we had a podcast a while back on, on a report that came out um, around uh, workforce uh, development, and, and we'll link to that. And uh, I also had a really good conversation with um, uh, Scott Wiley, uh, who at the time was the incoming chair, now is the the chair of the American Society of Association Executives, and you know the role he sees associations playing in workforce development. And and sustainability and, you know, and how ASAE might look at that and how his own uh, association, the Ohio uh, uh, Society of CPAs, um, is looking at that as well. So, you know, this was a year where, you know, the kind of the rubber started to hit the road around the connection between uh, providers of lifelong learning, the whole issue around preparing a workforce, addressing gaps between higher education and the workforce, and then just supporting, you know, this this whole concept really of, um, well, we, we've always viewed education uh, or, or uh, continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning is, is representing kind of a, a third sector of, of education overall. We've, we've talked about the concept of the other 50 years um, for, for quite a while now, and this is the idea that, you know, you get out of, of college or whatever. Whatever, whatever your highest level of educational attainment is, and the average person is going to have another 50 years in front of them when they're out there in the workforce, you know, having to 
earn a living. And so it is just increasingly important to think about uh, lifelong learning as a third sector, um, really putting it on a par with, you know, K through 12 and higher education in how we invest in it, uh, the policy discussions we have around it, um, the level of leadership and vision that we bring to it. And, you know, we, we won't say that all of that was realized in, in 2016, but a, a very, uh, you know, I, I think a concrete shift uh, in that direction started to happen during 2016. And we're going to see that, I think, be a, a growing trend in, in the coming years. So that's the first trend for from 2016, that tightening link between lifelong learning and workforce development. And the second trend um, that we want to talk about is the impact of virtual reality on learning. Um, and one of the things that I did in, in preparing for this was went and looked at uh, Google Trends and just for searches around that term, virtual reality. And if you go back for as far as Google Trends has data back to 2004, I mean, you can see that Right now, December 2016, virtual uh, reality as a search term has hit you know peak impact. It's at 100 right now in Google. It, it looks like it's shooting through the roof. I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, skyrocketing there. Um, so, wanted to look at the impact of virtual reality on learning. But first, let's just define our, our term here. You know, what do I mean by virtual reality? So, when I talk about that, I'm talking about an artificial environment. Um, which is experienced through sensory stimuli, so sights and sounds, um, that are provided by a computer and in which one's actions um, partially determine what happens in the environment. So it's a responsive environment to what we're doing there, and it's uh, based on, on sensory input. And so I think part of why we see a big spike in virtual reality here in 2016 is that... Um, Oculus Rift came on the market this year. Mm. So back in um, March, uh, Rift was released, and um, uh, just earlier this month, Rift was enhanced further because uh, they released Touch. So those are little motion-sensing controllers. So this adds the the haptic or that sense of touch, that ability to uh, manipulate and perceive objects using touch. Um, now we have that haptic in addition to the sights and sounds features that we already had with um, other virtual reality. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that's part of what's driving all this frenzy. And um, and maybe some people are going to find that in their uh, their year-end gifts this year. I, I will note that I was in um, Best Buy for the first time in, in ages this week, and I can't remember the last time I walked into one of those stores, but one of the first things I noticed was a, a couple of big display racks of uh, virtual reality headwear you know, for people to be uh, able to use, um, and so some of Oculus's uh, competitors were, were there on the racks as well. So this isn't just, isn't just Oculus. There's plenty of activity out there, and uh, note, too, that uh, you know Facebook owns Oculus, and Mark Zuckerberg is really big on this stuff, so you can bet it's going to get some traction. Well, and, and to your point, right, I mean, you know, Rift is certainly not the only option out there. And while it came on the market this year, you know, I also want to talk a little bit about Google Cardboard. Um, that has been out there for quite a while. And just as a point of reference, um, you know, that uh, as of January of this year, the five millionth cardboard had shipped out. So you think about that, the Rift wasn't even on the market until March of this year. But in January, January of this year, they're already 5 million Google Cardboard viewers out That's there. That's amazing, available. yeah. yeah. And so, of course, you have, too, that, that Google Cardboard represents a, a much lower price point than does the Oculus Rift. So, you know, the Cardboard is only $15. The Rift is more like $600. Rift requires a personal computer. Cardboard only needs a, a smartphone. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting kind of uh, diverse field at this point, you know. 
so Google's made this choice to to really go with market penetration over you know product perfection or even wow factor and um, and I think what's interesting there is that when you um, begin to see significant market penetration with these virtual reality viewers and technologies, then this is when we can start to see less specialized uses of virtual reality. We can ben- begin to see it being used outside of the gaming world and and outside of you know maybe really expensive training contexts like you know military and the really high stakes areas like that. Um, you know, one example I just want to offer of kind of virtual reality beginning to have an impact on learning is that uh, this fall, um, uh, 2016, Harvard streamed its most popular uh, class, Computer Science 50, in virtual reality. Now, what they did wasn't particularly um, difficult. All they did was take this in-person college course, um, and instead of filming it the kind of usual way, they used a 360-degree camera. But I think What's noteworthy is that um, this type of use of virtual reality for learning is ready, readily achievable in this day and age mm-hmm. on both kind of the producer organizer side and on the learner side. You know, all Harvard really needed was that 360 degree camera, and then all the learners need is a cheap Google cardboard and and a smartphone, which they probably already have. Um, you know, another example is that um, organizations are using virtual reality um, to really uh, play on the empathetic benefits uh, of virtual reality. So the United Nations, for example, has done a, a VR film about a, a Syrian refugee camp called Clouds Over Sidra. And so I think it's really interesting, too, to think about that, the empathetic benefit of virtual reality, how not only are you getting access to the content, but to the extent that you are really being placed there in those situations, um, that there is a, a real chance for emotions to be involved as well as... Um, as well as our intellect to, to be involved. And so I think that represents a, a great potential path forward for the use of technology for learning. And you know, we've sort of lamented in the past that um, technology-based learning, oh, it takes us away from that personalized and from that human experience. Maybe virtual reality will give us back that sense of really being connected to someone else while, while we're learning. And so I think that means then that we can see a varied uh, range of applications for virtual reality. Not only can you, um, you know, maybe be teaching things like specific surgery techniques, especially as we get that haptic ability in virtual reality, but you could also be teaching some of the softer skills the, that play more on the emotions, things like bedside manners. Yeah, I mean, I can see just a, a real application for this. For example, uh, we, we work with a lot of organizations that uh, provide training related to certifications or just, you know, testing related to, to certifications, and, and they need to have a hands-on component, which uh, can be, you know, logistically really difficult and, and expensive uh, to organize. But, I mean, you can see, you, are, you know, you mentioned medical. I can see this with any number of the trades, uh, you know, electricians, plumbers, anybody else, where you need to be able to do that hands-on component. I mean, we're not that far away from, being able to provide um, these sorts of virtual experiences where people can try that and be observed um, as they're doing it. So I, it really could be a, uh, a revolution both in training and in certification, um, I think, going forward. 
So th those were our, our trends for uh, 2016, and, and now we need to you know, put ourselves on the line and uh, make some, some forecasts uh, for the, the coming year and, and beyond and, and what we're seeing out there. And so I'll, uh, I'll throw out the opening shot again on that. And um, you know what, what I'm predicting uh, in, in 2017 and, um, and, and certainly on, on beyond that is uh, I think we are due for kind of a market shakeup, a uh, market shakeout uh, in, in terms of the um, lifelong learning technology market. Um, we've just seen a tremendous amount of uh, investment um, and startup activity in this market over the the past few years. Um, we mentioned earlier, you know, the whole uh, rise of the kind of entrepreneurial subject matter expert. You know, the the instructor who's able to publish on on his or her own, and a lot of that's owing to the fact um, that the platforms have now come along. A lot of you know, a whole crop of platforms have come along to um, support instructors in doing that. Um, we've also seen investors, you know, pouring money into into those platforms and, and, and others. Um, you know, an example of one of those types of platforms is um, Udemy. Uh, and, you know, if you're listening and you haven't yet visited Udemy.com and understood what's going on there, both for um, end users, learners, and for subject matter experts, uh, you need to do that. Um, in their last round, they got $60 million um, to help grow that company, and they've gotten previous investment uh, before that. We mentioned uh, Udacity earlier around um, nano degrees, you know, and Udacity was originally one of the big MOOC companies, massive open online courses and they started really focusing that towards doing these nano degrees often you know partnering with universities to, to offer these degrees that are more focused and, and, and shorter in length um, they just got they got uh, uh, valued a little earlier this year at a billion dollars. Um, you know, which is, you know, really astounding. And, and folks might recall that, you know, last year, lynda.com got bought um, by linkedin.com for $1.5 So a lot of money flowing in, a lot of startup activity um, going on, uh, you know, akin to, say, 1997 or so when, when you and I first got involved <laughs> in the market. And all you know, at that point, you know, stupid money was being thrown in. I'm not sure this money is stupid. I, you know, I think there was a lot of opportunity um, going on. But nonetheless, when you have that much money flowing into a marketplace, you know, things are going to get stable at some point. And some of that is definitely, you know, flowing over into the association uh, marketplace. I mean, we've already seen some, some acquisition activity going on over the past couple of years. Um, Peach New Media being bought up by Abila, um, Digital Ignite being bought up by um, your membership. Um, I think we're going to see more acquisition activity in the association market. I think we will see some investment money specifically flow into uh, companies that are in, in the learning space within the association market. We've certainly already seen technology investments in other areas uh, of the association marketplace. But I also think we're starting to have a, a, gut, a glut of uh, supply uh, for learning platforms in the association marketplace. You know, when we when we started tracking um, learning platforms years ago, I think 2009 was when we put out our first report. We had, um, I believe, uh, 11 platforms from 10 companies that were covered in that first report. The last report we put out in, in 2013, um, I believe we had 20 systems, and um, you know, they're now probably around 35 systems or so that, that we actively track, you know, that we think are, we think are, we think are legitimate contenders in the association space. And there have to be another, you know, 20 or 30, um, you know, that we may hear from, uh, you know, every six months or so that now see the association space as a, a attractive uh, point of expansion. Um, you know, they're, they're tapping out what they're able to do in the corporate space or the academic space. And so feel like now they can come over here. But you start to have, you know, 
too many companies um, serving a, a niche market, uh, kind of money being thrown all over the place, acquisition activity going on. I mean, there, there's just there is going to be a, a shake up, a shake out. We're going to see um, companies consolidate. We're going to see some companies go out uh, of business. Um, you know, and I think that uh, probably the lesson for for listeners is to to be a little cautious um, right now. I mean, certainly everybody needs to embrace technology. You can't do without that. But you know, make sure as you're doing that, you know, that you are that you're aware of what you're you know, technology providers' plans for the, the future are, you know, are they telling a compelling story? Do they have a roadmap that, uh, that aligns, for example, with a lot of the trends um, that we've been identifying here? Um, and be thinking, you know, if, if any of your learning technology providers were to disappear, how difficult is it going to be for you to, to recover? You know, what's your, what's your plan B? Um, and then, you know, as you're selecting new providers and technologies, make sure that you're, you're finding out as much as you can about their stability. In, in most cases, these are going to be private companies, so you're not going to get access to their financials. But definitely check those references. Find out what kind of customer experience they've been delivering. Do, you know, find out about their roadmap. Find out if they've made good on their roadmap in the past uh, when they've talked about it. Um, you know, and, and just get the, the general sense of the of the buzz that's out there uh, around them, and, and you know, picture where that company could potentially be in three to five years. And you know, if you're not feeling the compelling story there, and you're not getting good feedback about how that company is evolving, then you know, definitely think twice about proceeding with that company. All right. So your prediction for 2017 is a whole lot of shaking going on. A whole lot of shaking <laughs> going on. Yeah. So um, for my prediction, my look ahead to 2017, I want to talk about incentive challenges. I think we're going to see a rise of incentive challenges. So when we have different teams or individuals that compete to solve a problem and, and win a prize. Now, like so many of these things, like, you know, personalized learning, you know, going back to the days of tutors, you know, incentive challenges are not anything new. They've been around a long time, at least as far back as the 16th century, because I know the, the Spanish crown instituted a, a prize to um, uh, help figure out how to dis how we can calculate longitude at sea. So that was like a major challenge for them, went the uh, incentive challenge route to solve that problem. But um, what I want to do is put uh, the frame of, um, of, uh, of incentive challenges around um, looking forward, because I think when we um, think about things as an incentive challenge, it really changes how we're thinking about learning, that if we are thinking about learning as courses or conferences or or seminars? Well, then we're focused on solutions and products. But um, you know, incentive challenges really uh, get us to focus on defining the key problems first. Um, so that makes sure that we're really grappling with something that's important that is a problem. Um, and so we have to clarify that problem first, and then and then we get to solutions and and products. But we don't start with um, solutions and products. Now. I think I should probably define incentive challenge a little bit more just to make sure that um, kind of how I'm using that term is, is clear. And so first and foremost, uh, as I mentioned, I think incentive challenges focus on problems. So again, we're really clear on that problem before we even contemplate the first possible solution. And so I think in this sense, Jeff, that um, incentive challenges really relate to that design thinking and that grand design learning that, that you were talking about uh, the last time around that we did this. Um, and then I also think that incentive challenges, they, they carry a monetary or some other inducement that's going to motivate participation. They are broadly open to teams and individuals who, who want to try to solve that problem, want to submit solutions. And then uh, incentive challenges also set really clear parameters for how and, and when um, a winner will be chosen. Um, 
So, you know, I think incentive challenges really help us keep in mind that learning and education and professional development really should all be done in that service of a greater purpose. Um, yeah, we want to uh, impact positively the lives of individual learners, but I think incentive challenges also um, give us this idea we can also impact um, the field or industry where where we serve and where we're operating. Now, um, some listeners should be familiar with the X Prize because Jeff, you had the the chance to talk with Shlomi Katan, um, who is That's running right. running one of their current X Prizes. Um, and so, these X Prizes these are large scale initiative challenges. Um, the Ansari X Prize um, challenged teams to build a re- reusable, privately financed um, manned spaceship, and that prize was awarded a number of years ago, back in two thousand four. And um, it really also helped at the same time launch a, a private space industry. Um, but they have active X prizes going on, like the one you talked with Shlomi about, and we'll link to that interview. Um, and uh, they also have ones around um, things like the Global Learning X Prize, which is around how to develop open source software that's going to enable children in developing countries to teach themselves basic reading, writing, and arithmetic in 18 months. So that's a a big um, prize. It's going on now. Um, the timeline has that uh, a winner will be announced in 2019. Uh, another example are um, grand challenges. So you might also be familiar with those. And I know that some of you listening um, attended our leading learning symposium. And Seth Kahn was part of the faculty. And he talked uh, about some of the grand challenges he's working on with a number of associations, um, including the American Nurses Association. And I had a chance to talk with Marla Weston of uh, A&A uh, on a podcast, so we'll make sure to link to that interview as well. But their grand challenge is, is that they are going to um, measurably improve the health of America's 3.4 million nurses. And so they're calling their grand challenge Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation, and I know they're gonna really kick it into high gear in, in 2017. I also know that the uh, American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare has um, developed grand challenges for social work. So they've identified these 12 challenges that are focused on improving individual and family well-being and strengthening the social fabric and, and creating a more just society. So they've put this frame of these 12 challenges around the work that they're doing. And then... Um, the American Society for Association Executives, ASAE, is uh, currently offering an incentive challenge that, that ties back to that workforce development trend that we uh, talked about earlier in this podcast. So they're partnering with the American Council on Education and Credly on an incentive challenge that aims at, and this is, quote, generating new ideas and engaging education and industry association leaders in, a, in breakthrough thinking to help close the skills gap. So this is around... Um, how to use digital credentials to help connect qualified individuals with job opportunities. And and the incentive in this case is $10,000 and an invitation to present at ASAE's Great Ideas uh, Conference in 2017. So those are just a a few examples of the kinds of activities I have in mind when I'm thinking of incentive challenges. And, And while they don't focus solely on learning and education, you know, I believe very strongly that if you're going after the kind of changes and improvements that X Prizes and the American Nurses Association and ASAE and, and the others are aiming for, you know, there's going to be a learning component to it. So in thinking about what incentive challenges might mean for your organization, you know, 
first you're going to have to identify those intractable problems in your field or industry. What are those problems? And I think you want to focus in particular on problems in areas where kind of a more training approach isn't going to be um, sufficient, probably. You're going to be wanting to look at those problems and, and issues that require kind of a broad take on learning, you know, beyond courses and conferences. Um, you also need to look at, you know, do you have um, an incentive that would be meaningful to encourage people to participate? And if you don't have those means, maybe you have a partner or maybe you can create a group of partners um, that together can collectively offer uh, uh, an attractive incentive. And then, of course, you want to think about the risks and rewards to pursuing uh, an incentive challenge. You know, these can be very long-term, big-scale projects. So you have to weigh whether or not it makes sense to undertake one. You know, is it a good use of your resources? Just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. But I am predicting a, a rise in incentive challenges. Well, I, I certainly hope we see that. I'm a big fan of incentive challenges and, uh, and really a big fan of just you know thinking about learning in this way. I mean, learning is a, a force for change, and that goes beyond you know what you're able to do with the individual in the classroom or even within an organization. I mean, learning uh, can be the, the force for major social change, for major industry and field change, and of course, you know, this whole concept of leading learning that we have, I mean, that that's what it's all about. You know, when you're leading learning in your field, in your sector, you are leading significant change for individuals, for organizations, and for the entire, you know, field or industry that you serve. So, you know, the, to the extent that incentive challenges can help to make that happen, I certainly hope they uh, truly take off. So that's uh, those are our, our, our trends and our predictions. You know, we started off with the uh, the, the two trends: workforce development and uh, you know, and virtual reality, and then the predictions. Uh, you know, there being a, a market uh, shakeup or shakeout, uh, and then uh, incentive challenges. And of course, those are in the context, as we said, of uh, our having been making predictions for years, and many of our trends and predictions still, you know, rolling on and evolving. Um, but we would uh, certainly love to, to hear from you, your perspective on anything we've covered in this podcast episode or anything different that, that you're seeing. So I encourage you to come and visit the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com forward slash episode 62. As we're exiting, though, we want to say thanks again to your membership for being the sponsor of this episode of the podcast. And you can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. And while you are getting show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 62, you will see options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you are getting value out of what you're hearing, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. And we'd also be grateful, remember this is the season for giving, if you would go to iTunes and give us a quick rating and review. And you can do that very easily just by going to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. And that really makes it easier for others who might value the podcast to find out about it. So please get on over there and, and give us a rating and review if you have not already. And we also hope you will consider telling others about the podcast. Consider this a way of giving to them, giving them the gift of the Leading Learning Podcast. So you can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can pick another social network of your choice. So thanks again, and we'll see you the next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.